Hey, I'm really excited about this morning. Um, I first met our, our speaker, uh, I guess it was actually over an online forum. We were taking a class together this summer. And just every post that, that, he would, that he would make, every time I see a notification Andrew Cullen posted, I couldn't wait to read what it was. He was so insightful, um, but yet so relatable. Just a, an excellent uh, young man that I just appreciated everything that he had to say in that class. And we had never met face to face, but we are now taking a class together this fall that meets every Monday up in Indy. And I just continue to be really impressed um, by Andrew's depth of, of knowledge, his love and his humility, uh, and I'm excited to see what he's going to bring to us this morning when it comes to just what does it mean to live like Jesus and how we pray. Jesus modeled prayer so well for us, and uh, so Andrew's going to share a little bit more about that uh, this morning. Would you please help me welcome Andrew Cullen to the stage? Thanks. Do you all uh, realize what a sincere, loving pastor that you have in Sean? I've, I've only known him, like he said, for about three months, um, but I can see both his competency and his character. Uh, he loves his family, he loves God, and he loves you all. You can hear that and you can see it in the stories that he tells when, when we meet up on, on Monday morning. So since it's Pastor Appreciation Month, how about we just show him a little appreciation? Uh, I can tell you that being a pastor is not always easy, <laughs> uh, and we need all the encouragement that we can get. There are three things that I appreciate about Sean. Um, this was not one of them, but I'll just go ahead and throw it out there since you guys already know. Uh, I appreciate that he's awkward, <laughs> because that means I can do whatever I want, and you guys aren't going to think any less of me because you're used to that, I guess. Uh, the second thing that I appreciate about him is that he is willing to take risks, He's willing to entertain new ideas and run with it. No, no holding back. Uh, the third thing that I appreciate is that he didn't tell you that I was speaking this morning. Because if you would have known that a young 25-year-old guy was coming to preach, you might not have showed up. Uh, you're all in the fifth week of a series called Live Like Jesus. And you have been talking about how we can live more like Jesus. And not only how we can live more like Jesus, but how we can help others do the same. This series is really about discipleship. Uh, do you remember the definition of discipleship that, that Sean established in the first week? Discipleship, it's becoming more like Jesus in attitude and action. So there's two components. It's becoming more like Jesus in attitude, maybe what you feel in your heart, the way you think in your mind, and then the overflow of the heart, right out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, so in your, in your actions. And we are to be disciples of Jesus and not just be disciples, but make disciples. And part of being a disciple of Jesus means imitating who Jesus was. Hence the reason the series is called Living Like Jesus. We're to be relational as Jesus was relational. We're to be intentional as Jesus was intentional. Revealing truth as Jesus revealed truth. Speaking as Jesus spoke and praying as Jesus prayed. What's the most pointless thing that you have ever done? I hope you're not looking at the person next to you. <laughs> Back in Bible college, I was a senior, so as a senior, I knew it all. 
in my capstone course, the very last course that I had to take before graduating, I had to write this three-page paper answering the question, what is the gospel? It seemed like a pretty elementary question, right? I mean, I was a Christian since I was 12, and so I knew the answer to the question then, and now I'm my senior year of Bible college, and now all of a sudden I'm writing this three-page paper answering the question, what's the gospel? I mean, I knew it all, right? So what's the point of this? Of course I know what the gospel is. Is this really necessary? Do you guys feel like praying is pointless? You wonder if it's really necessary? Does it seem like a waste of time? Maybe you don't pray because God doesn't answer, or you don't really need anything. So what's the point of asking God for help? Perhaps you don't have time, or it could be you just don't simply know how to pray. I want to talk with you about praying like Jesus. Because Jesus modeled for his disciples the importance of praying in all situations. Jesus modeled for his disciples the importance of praying for, praying for in all situations. And so if we are going to live like Jesus and we are going to make disciples like Jesus, then we must pray like Jesus. And our text for this morning is continuing in John chapter 17. And this week we're looking specifically at verse 9. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can go ahead and turn to John 17. You probably already have because you knew that we were in John 17. And this is when Jesus is praying for his disciples, so they are with him. He's praising God, thanking God for giving his closest friends to him. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And so in this specific prayer, Jesus is not saying that I don't ever pray for the lost. But Jesus is narrowing the scope and saying, in this prayer, my specific focus is praying for my disciples, praying for those who are going to follow after me when I die, rise, and ascend into heaven, those who are going to carry on the ministry that I have started here on earth. And so as we look at this uh, verse 9, I want to take that, that dominant thought that Jesus modeled praying for his disciples in all situations and divide it into six truths, okay? And we're going to be following. So the first truth is going to relate to Jesus modeling the second or the next few truths are going to relate to Jesus uh, praying, showing the importance of prayer, and then finally in all situations. Okay, sound good? All right, so the first truth is Jesus taught by example. In other words, Jesus modeled for his disciples prayer. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at one of our middle school boys' football games, and one of the moms had lifted her three year old daughter over the fence and set her there with some of the cheerleaders. Now, at first, she didn't know what she was doing, but slowly, she began to to do some of the basic cheer motions with the cheerleaders. And I started thinking, how does she know what to do, right? She's three years old. She's never done any sort of cheer before. Well, imitation. She saw what they were doing, and she imitated that. I mean, you think about it. When babies are growing up, and we teach them how to walk, we teach them how to eat, we teach them how to go to the bathroom, in the bathroom, how to talk, how to, how to relate to people respectfully. What do all these things have in common? They're all necessary for life. When we do not teach our children to pray as Jesus prayed, 
what are we communicating about prayer? That it's not necessary for life. Don't be afraid to ask someone to show you how to pray. And and don't be afraid to, to show someone, to pray with someone if they come to you and ask you how to pray. The very last thing that Jesus is going to do with his disciples is pray. That's exactly what we read about in John 17. And why did Jesus pray so often for his disciples? Well, it's because he regarded them so dearly as God's gift to him. Remember talking about how Jesus praised the Father for giving him his disciples? Well, in John chapter 17, that phrase, you have given, appears nine times. Nine times in one chapter. And so Jesus is saying, thank you, Lord, that you have given me a gift. I love these people. And as disciples, Jesus looks at us and says, I love Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. I love my disciples. And Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is praying for us, right? That's what Paul writes in Romans, that the Spirit is interceding for us on our behalf. So this prayer of John 17 is something that we all can experience even now. So Jesus modeled for his disciples. The second truth is that Jesus rejoiced in the relationship, not the power. He rejoiced in the relationship of prayer, not the power. Uh, how do you get to know someone? Well, you get, what? You spend time with them. And when you spend time with them, are you sitting there in silence? No, you're communicating. You get to know someone when you communicate. And prayer is communication, communication with God. It bridges the divide between a God who is, who is an idea and a God who is real, a God who is close, a Father who is loving. In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we read that it happened that as he was praying, as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Okay, so, so first of all, the disciples are with Jesus, so he's modeling prayer for them. And then about nine days later, after Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain to see his glory revealed, Jesus is encountered by a man whose, whose son is possessed by a demon. And the man comes to Jesus. He says, I begged your disciples to cast this demon out. But they could not. And after Jesus goes, cast the demon out of the boy, the disciples then come to Jesus and they say, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind can only be driven out by what? Prayer. It wasn't long then before the 12 disciples started comparing themselves to one another. So they've gone out, they've performed these miracles, attempted to perform some miracles, and it's not long before they start to compare themselves. They argue who's the greatest, perhaps based on who had the most success. And John points out to Jesus that we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. And Jesus says to John, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And then as Jesus sets out towards Jerusalem, some of the people did not welcome Jesus along the way. And so now James and John come to Jesus again asking another question. They say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? That doesn't seem like the kind of love that Jesus had taught them earlier, does it? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Why did Jesus rebuke them? Because they misunderstood the power of prayer. 
Prayer is not a power that we're able to use to condemn people, to call down fire from heaven. Prayer is communication with God that empowers us to go out and to minister to the lost. Then Jesus, after having this conversation with the disciples, appoints 72 more people, and they go out and they do what the 12 disciples are doing. He gives them the exact same instructions, and in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, he says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then these 72 return with joy, and they say, Lord, even the demons, they're subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing's going to hurt you. And then he concludes with, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see the connection? The disciples go and they try and perform a miracle that they're unable to do because it can only be cast out by prayer. They start arguing about which is the best and Jesus says, it's not about you. Look, I'm going to send 72 other people out to do things and they're going to return with joy because they had success when you didn't have success. And then he says, don't rejoice in the fact that you have the power to perform miracles, but rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven, that you have a relationship with God the Father. And so it takes a little while, but Jesus reorients his disciples' understanding of prayer to move from the power to the relationship. Um, after the Purdue Boilermakers beat the Indiana Hoosiers in a blowout, sorry, my, my girlfriend's here and she's a Purdue fan, um, so I have, to, I have to say that, but I'm actually an IU fan, just so you all know. <laughs> what do the teammates do? After they win. Well, they congratulate one another. They celebrate together. They high-five one another because they recognize that the contribution that each person made to the overall victory. So what do we do when we have a spiritual victory over our opponent? What happens when we go out and, and someone repents and receives Christ? What happens when we go out and we experience a miracle, like God's hand clearly at work? Well, if we do not thank God and praise God like Jesus did, then we are not acknowledging that he is on our team. We think it was because of us that we won. See, we can rejoice in the power and, we can, and not in the relationship. Okay, the third truth. Jesus acted as if he expected an answer. Jesus acted as if he expected an answer. In other words, prayer creates these expectations in our mind that cause us to act. We expect God to answer us, and so we live as if he will. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. A few days after Jesus sends out the 72 disciples, Jesus is praying in a certain place. And in Luke 11, verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. Okay, you see the problem. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had already taught them how to pray. When you pray, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven, and there's the Lord's Prayer. And in Luke 10, he had actually just taught them how to pray. And wasn't it Jesus who said, when you pray, pray then like this, go into your room, shut the door? So why all of a sudden are they asking now how to pray? 
And notice that they don't say, Lord, teach us to perform miracles. Could it be that they're realizing that what's important are not the miracles they perform, but it's the relationship that they have? Jesus had already taught them that victory over Satan comes through prayer, not in performance. And then in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so Jesus is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, he is going to guide them, the disciples, guiding us in the same way to the answers that we seek if they ask to be shown the truth. Jesus said earlier in a parable that if you knock, the door will be opened, right? If you seek, you will find. He's saying, if you seek me, I will come to you. And the Holy Spirit will help guide you unto truth. Uh, Why do we not expect to receive the fruits of the Spirit? Find the strength maybe to carry on the mission of Christ or not expect to have one life opportunities open to us. Jesus called those who didn't receive him three things. He called them hard-hearted, unable to receive the seed of the gospel. He called them blind, unable to find him. And he called them deaf, unable to hear the knock at the door. So by modeling prayer and expecting God to answer, Jesus proves to his disciples that prayer is worth it, that it is necessary, that it is important, which is why they come and they ask him now how to pray. Because it's one thing to be taught how to pray and then to see the power of it over a few years of ministry and then come back later and say, Lord, we understand its importance. Teach us how to pray. What do we do, though, when a 10-year-old boy dies of cancer? After years of faithfully praying for his healing, or what do we do when a 61-year-old lady who's faithfully volunteers in the church is suddenly diagnosed with the most aggressive type of cancer and is given only months to live? Or what do we do when the parents of two young children died tragically in a car accident? It isn't fair. They didn't do anything to deserve this. But you know what isn't fair? That we should be forgiven after having done nothing to deserve such love. Because God forgives in all situations, we pray in all situations. God's abundant forgiveness, not his answers to our selfish prayers, proves his love. God's forgiveness is what proves his love for us. And so in all situations, we pray. Which brings us to the fourth truth. Jesus prayed before he ministered. So now we're going to go back. We're going to go to the very beginning of Jesus's ministry when he launched his disciple-making mission. And he spends the first 40 days praying and fasting. And while he is in the wilderness, Satan comes and tempts him. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 15 through 16, after this experience in the wilderness, we read, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So he had just spent all this time out in the wilderness. He comes back, and then he retreats again and prays. But now, in Luke, 
Even more, the report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, but Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So as Jesus is gaining popularity, as he is doing more and more ministry and people are able to identify him in a crowd of people walking down the street, Jesus still takes time to withdraw, to pray. Now that word desolate, that means a solitary place, a quiet place, a deserted place. It's it's sort of a place that that no other people are going to be around. And that's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. In other words, go to a desolate, isolated place. Uh, When I was in my first year of college, I would get up early in the morning and I would pray. And since I had a roommate who liked to sleep in, I really had no choice but to leave the lights off and go into the bathroom, shut the door, and get down onto my knees and pray. And I'd be on that cold, hard tile floor for 30 to 45 minutes. And that's really where I learned how to pray. It was in those 30 minutes each day, spent one-on-one with God, no distractions, no noise, sacrificing the comfort of my knees, that I learned how to pray. And then the rest of my day, man, tell you what, the, the cards align, don't they? Everything falls into place when you begin the morning with prayer. So Jesus prayed before he ministered, and it set him up for success in his ministry. The fifth truth is he didn't just pray before he ministered, he prayed after. As Jesus, after Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out to multiply the effect of his ministry by healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel, he teaches them the principle of multiplication by feeding the 5,000 people. Isn't that cool? Have you guys ever made that connection? Jesus teaches his disciples, go out, do these things, because we're going to multiply this ministry, multiply God's mission. And then right after they return, he teaches them what that looks like by saying, see these fish in this loaves? There's no way this is going to feed 5,000 people unless we multiply it. And so he gives them a lesson and then, like prayer, shows them what it looks like. In Matthew 14, 23, after all this, after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. So Jesus didn't just pray before he ministered, but he prayed after he ministered. Now, we know it was about 6 p.m. when this happened, and Jesus goes walking on the water to Peter at about 3 a.m. So do the math. How many hours did Jesus spend in prayer on that mountain? Nine hours. That makes 30 minutes on my hard bathroom floor look like nothing. Through the middle of the night when he was supposed to be sleeping. Think about what Jesus might have been praying about. Well, earlier we read that he had been rejected by the people of his hometown. So the people that were supposed to know him best had rejected him. And then he had just received news that John the Baptist, one of his closest friends, had been beheaded. So Jesus is not just praying after the successful ministry. He is praying in spite of the pain that he has experienced. And that's why he was trying to get away by himself. So Jesus prayed before he ministered. He prayed after he ministered. And then Jesus persisted in prayer. In all situations, Jesus persisted in prayer. 
Jesus prays at all the major points in his life. He, he prayed in the Sermon on the Mount. He prayed before he raised Lazarus from the dead. In Matthew 11, after teaching the disciples about who he was as the Messiah, he prayed. As he entered Jerusalem to begin the Passion Week, he prayed. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. And then when he was on the cross, he prayed. And so Jesus' prayer in John 17 was a prayer in a season of pain. Jesus had just found out or knew that Judas was going to betray him. Peter would deny him. Thomas doesn't understand Jesus' teaching. Neither does Philip. And some of the disciples don't understand what he's saying either. And these are all in chapters 13 through 16. And now all of a sudden in chapter 17, Jesus persists in prayer when pain persists. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? To persist in prayer when pain persists. You guys know George Mueller, the, the man who ran the orphanage in London? Well, George Mueller uh, tells a story of persistent prayer in his diary. And so I want to, I want to read this to you. In November um, 1844, I, George speaking, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. It sounds like praying in all situations, doesn't it? Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted, and I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second, the second was converted, and I thanked God for the second, prayed on for the other three. And day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three, went on praying for the other two. And these two remained unconverted. And then 36 years later, he wrote that the other two were still not converted. And then Mueller wrote, I hope in God, I pray on, and I look for the answer. So he anticipated the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. And in 1897, 52 years after he began to pray daily for these two men, they were finally converted. And it was after he had died. See, Mueller understood what Luke meant when he introduced the parable of the persistent widow. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he wrote, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Jesus modeled for his disciples the importance of praying in all situations. After writing my three-page paper answering the question, what is the gospel, <clears throat> I realized I didn't understand the gospel as well as I thought I did. Writing that paper was both necessary for me and beneficial. It took reading three books, spending hours writing a comprehensive yet concise paper, but I am more like Jesus now than I was before. And I can say the same thing about prayer. I am more like Jesus now than I was before because I did what I thought I already knew how to do. 
So I want to leave you guys with two action steps that, that we can take together, two action steps to, to imitate the life of prayer that Jesus modeled. So the first action step is to create your own sacred space, your own garden of Gethsemane, your own place of solitude. Go there to pray and read your Bible every day this upcoming week. And then I want you to write down the good and the bad of the experience. What was good? What was bad? How did you feel? Were you refreshed? How'd the rest of your day go? So find a space that is your place of solitude, uninterrupted prayer, and go there to pray and read your Bible. The second action step is to pray short prayers. Now, what I'm not saying is when you pray to pray for a short period of time. I'm saying pray short prayers throughout the day. So if a friend shares a prayer request with you, like, pray with them on the spot. Don't say, I'll pray for you, and then forget about it the next day. Write it down. Pray for them on the spot. Or if you think of a praise while you're shopping for food or just driving to work, like, say, thanks, God. That, that was an awesome experience. Thanks for giving me that one-life opportunity, that, that chance to disciple someone. So pray a short prayer, trust God for the results, and move on. All of us are going to have days and seasons when we experience highs and lows in life, right? But it's in those seasons that what we do and where we turn matters. We get to model the correct response to those that we're discipling. In fact, our prayers are discipleship's greatest weapon. Yes, our response in these seasons can impact our one life, but a life of prayer is as much about our relationship with God as it is about someone else's relationship with God. So we've talked about prayer, and now we're going to do it. Uh, so Sean's going to come up, and he's going to lead us through a few moments of prayer. And as he does, let's, let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for your word, for, for the life of Christ that is modeled for us, for the fact that Jesus didn't just teach about it, but he showed us what it looks like. And Lord, we need your help. We need the help of the Spirit to teach us, to intercede for us, to come alongside us and comfort us and give us joy and give us peace and give us hope in the midst of our pain, in all situations that we would pray fervently and persistently because we know that you love us and man, Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.